Well, today we've reached the end of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And just when we think he should be bidding us a fond farewell, he's actually welcoming us into a fresh new fellowship. Not only with one another, but with the Lord Himself. Like, everything's the opposite of what it should be. Remember when Paul McCartney sang, you say goodbye, but I say hello. That's what Paul's doing here. The other Paul. (laughs) But if there's anything Paul has taught us in this epistle, I think it's to expect the unexpected. In God's kingdom, everything is turned upside down. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. The meek will inherit the earth, while the mighty will go down to Sheol. So in these last three verses of his letter, I think we get one last glance through this Gospel window, reminding us how the good news of Jesus Christ invites us into a new and never-ending fellowship of the King. And so, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the the letter of the Philippians together. And so, one last time, I'd like to give us a very brief bird's-eyed view of the letter as a whole. Now, you remember some of the themes that we've contemplated thus far. Ideas about joy and suffering. Ideas about humility and unity. You know, the Philippians were an Eastern European church uh, in the metro Macedonia area. It's just north of Greece. And they lived in uh, the city of Philippi, which is a Roman military outpost city. So it was, you know, it was very Roman in its culture. And so that culture was all about violence and wealth, pride. And yet, the work of the Gospel had so transformed these people that every step of the way, Paul commends them for being humbled and unified and self-giving in Jesus. They weren't like they used to be. They were something totally new, something totally upsetting to the status quo. They're given now to generous support, not only of Paul in prison, making sure that he doesn't starve, that he doesn't um, freeze to death, that he has friends, that he has uh, what he needs to study. Not only that, But we read also from Paul that they're giving generously to other suffering churches. Here they are, a poor, small church, and they're giving to bigger churches that have needs. They've suffered abuse from their neighbors. They've suffered scorn from their families, pressure from their culture, bullying from their government. And yet, through it all, they've stayed true to Christ their King. Through it all, they've maintained the mind of Christ that we read about in Philippians chapter 2. They trusted that the God who began a good work in them really is one day going to bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. They've lived in such a way that they believe it's God moving in them both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. And so because all of that's true, because the Philippians believe, believe that and live that out, Paul has nothing but happy words end on. Really, no words of advice. No words of warning. Just joyful, happy words. An ending that really is just a new beginning for them. So let's look at these last three verses of this book. And every single one of Paul's letters in, um, I think he's got 13 letters, I want to say, in uh, the New Testament, he gives last remarks. 
But what we get here is a little bit shorter than what we would expect based on his other letters. His letters to Rome and Corinth and Thessalonica, for instance, Paul gives long lists of names. He shouts out a bunch of different people. But not here. Here he doesn't address really anyone in particular. And he doesn't go on and on addressing different things in the church. Instead, what we get here is that he addresses the church as a whole. As one. If, if, if it's as if he's writing to just one person. Although he's writing to many. And part of why that is, I think, is that he's reinforcing the idea that he's been getting at this whole time. That they are really all together one in Christ. They may come from different tax brackets, different families of various clouts. They may come from different industries and different careers. They may have different political opinions, philosophical ideas. None of that matters anymore. It doesn't matter if they're Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. They're all one in Jesus. And He addresses them as one congregation together. They are equals. Truly. You know, we live in a world where we still don't see each other as equals. We live in a land of liberty and equality and fraternity, borrowing from that old French phrase. But we don't look at each other as equals. We'll look at somebody as less than us. You know, they have a few more vices than we do. They've not got the educational background we do. They're not as classy. They don't go to nice establishments like we do. Or maybe we feel like we're the low man on the totem pole and everybody around us is more put together. They're better off. But in the economy of God, that's just simply not true. Everybody, whether you're Paul or a brand new Christian that's just come to faith and your life was a mess before, you were equally loved and forgiven and welcomed through the cross of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. So we hear in... We hear chapter 2, verses 1-4, through I think, resonating here a little bit. You remember when Paul wrote, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way. Having the same love. Being united in Spirit. Intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others, all others, especially ones you don't want to consider. Consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own or her own interest, but rather to the interest of others. That's what Paul is saying here in this, this last letter, reminding them of that reality. That they're of one love, one fellowship, one Spirit, one joy, one faith, one baptism, one Lord. And they are now all equal in Jesus. Again, people who have shared love, united Spirit, one intent, doing nothing selfishly. Everything done in humility, not for the sake of themselves, but the sake of one another. That alone is radical thinking in our world. Doing something for somebody else. <laughs> and not for ourselves. We're not given to that. We're not taught that. We're certainly not. I mean, it's a cliche at this point. But from the earliest ages, the, 
the cartoons and movies that our kids watch tell them to follow your own path, to do your own thing. And it just teaches us from our very earliest years that what matters to us is more important than what matters to one another. But the Bible is totally opposite on that. And so Paul doesn't highlight the people that our society would highlight. The big important overseers, a.k.a. the bishops and the pastors. You know, so often in our culture when we look especially at megachurches around us, we'll say, oh, that's so-and-so's church. Or, oh, this is so-and-so's church. Or, oh, that's you know the ministry of so-and-so. People, pastors have ministries where they <laughs> name the ministry after themselves. It's pretty wild to me. But Paul doesn't pull out or address any one of those particular people. Instead, he just writes to all of them. To the overseers, he doesn't make them special. To the deacons, he doesn't even point them out. He simply addresses the entire congregation all at once. Again, all equally beloved of God. And all of them, not just the preachers, not just the Sunday school teachers, not just the music leaders, all of them are called to Gospel partnership. Everybody has their role to play in the church. Everybody has Jesus to share Everybody, all of you here this morning that believe in the Lord Jesus, that have been baptized, that now follow Him, all of you are equal partners in sharing the Gospel. That's just not up to me, or the pastor emeritus, or the deacons, or the leaders. All of us have that role to share together. This is the radical inclusivity of the Gospel we see. In verse 21, he says, greet every saint. Now, the way that we talk about saints today, oh, this person is a saint. Oh, that person is a saint. The way the Bible talks about saints is anybody and everybody that's been called out to gospel partnership. Not just the ones that are really good at it. <laughs> but the normal people. The people that stumble their way through their life and faith. Normal people like us, in other words. That's who Paul has in mind here. Greet every saint. Every one of you is a saint this morning. St. Elizabeth. St. Ralph. St. Amber. St. Dennis. You're all saints. You may not feel like saints, but you are. And you're all included in this message. Every Christian who was once lost, who wandered through life with their own agendas and guilts and traumas and failures, greet all of them, Paul says. Greet every last one of them as a saint one who's called out from what they were. You're not defined by who you were, what you've done. You're now defined by whose you are. What you've been made as a new human being in the new man, Jesus Christ. Nothing determines, uh, nothing about you rather, determines your identity. Not your hyper-spirituality, nor your lowest, most scandalous, low-down rotten sin. That doesn't define you anymore, but rather Christ Jesus who is the King of Kings standing in on your behalf. It's only in Jesus, brothers and sisters, that we can come here today. Make no mistake about it. A lot of us have, you know, we came here to this church because we lived in this area or um, we've got family that's been here. You know, this is just where we've gone forever. But we don't come here for any human reason alone. We're all here today exclusively 
because of Jesus. It's only in Jesus that we can come today with all of our secrets and shames that we all have. All of our addictions and anxieties. All our self-righteousness and sins. All the things that made us when we got up this morning say, I don't want to go to church. That's what qualifies us to be here. It's because those are the things that Jesus sees in us and addresses and forgives and welcomes us into His kingdom. It's only in Jesus, not in ourselves, not in our families, not in our communities, certainly not in any of our philosophical or spiritual or social or political positions like we've so been taught. Think this way, vote this way, act this way, shop this way, and you're a real Christian. No! You're a Christian because of who you belong to. Not because of what you've done or what you do even. We can come here today all equally qualified to receive comfort and hope and renewal. Even when a lot of us are missing this morning because they're sick or traveling, we feel as a congregation weak and old and tired. Still, we can come here today in Jesus. And Paul, through the Spirit of God, reaches through time, I think, with Timothy and Epaphroditus and the Philippians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, now 2,000 years past, to send you that are here this morning a greeting. To say welcome to the family. Verse 22, I think, is what really strikes me today, though. Of all the verses, that we're, and we're only covering three, But of the three that we're covering, verse 22 I think is just so powerful. He writes, all the saints send you greeting. In other words, all the people in Rome that are with him. Of course, you know, he's probably talking about the people from the local congregation. Definitely those that are helping him and administering him in prison. Maybe even fellow prisoners that maybe not not in the same house arrest that Paul is, but in a similar situation. All of them send you greetings. But then he says this. This is wild. (laughs) Especially those who belong to whose household? To Caesar's household. Of all the Christians in Rome, the center of power in the ancient world, the Roman Empire, the ones who send their most vociferous, their most enthusiastic, their most joyful greetings, are the ones that belong to the house of the Roman king and emperor Caesar himself. Wow. Commentator Lynn Coek says that these people were most likely made up of a list of imperial clients, household servants or slaves, or maybe even freed men and women who were part of a large entourage that Caesar had. Kind of like a cabinet. Kind of like an administration. People that manage Caesar's vast estates, both locally in Rome and across the entire empire. People that helped conduct his civil affairs. In other words, just the lowly, bottom-of-the-rung servants who helped run the Roman Empire, they have found a new king, and it's not Caesar. It's Christ. And they send greetings to this little church. Commentator Marcus Bachmuel speculates that some of the names that we read in the end of Romans, in Romans chapter 16, were actually the Paul or the, the people that Paul had in mind here. Just as a uh, reminder, people like Aristobulus, scholars believed him to be 
perhaps uh, connected to the grandson of Herod the Great. Heard that name before, haven't we? He's part of the family of God. (laughs) Think of this now. Herod, who was persecuting Jesus and, and driving people out, having children killed, now people in his family and his lineage are in the house of Christ. <laughs> God has a sense of humor in that. Isn't or he mentions Narcissus' household. Narcissus. You remember that Greek legend of the, the, the man that's so beautiful that he stares into a pool and sees how beautiful he is? And he just stays there until he dies. Narcissism, that's where we get that name from. Narcissus household, it's a different Narcissus, but that's who he's named after. Narcissus household, who belonged probably to the family of Tiberius Claudius Narcissus, an influential freed slave who was under his peak power just a few years prior under Emperor Claudius between AD 41 through 54. So somebody in uh, an influential role in the previous Caesar's household is part of the family of God now. Or then there's Herodian, who is a fellow Jew, and some speculate might have been in some sense related to the Apostle Paul, or if not related to him by family, was at least a, a family friend or an acquaintance. And here he is now, a Jewish exile, or yeah, Jewish exile in Rome, a people that had rejected Jesus is now a part of the family of God. Someone who was once in service to Caesar now belongs heart and soul to Christ. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the of of the joy in suffering. That's the power of humility in a world of pride and selfishness. That it changes these kind of people into equal family members before God. From the seat of power, of dominance, of might makes right, we get a heartfelt, humble greeting of those who once belonged to Caesar, but now through Jesus have been adopted into a new family, into a new house. The house of God Himself. It's even possible that as Paul is writing to the Philippians, who are Roman citizens, and um, are maybe you know even from Rome originally, it's very possible that they have family members or friends that are connected to Caesar's household. Maybe they have a cousin or an uncle um, or somebody that works in Caesar's administration. And so, it's not only their um, physical family sending greeting, but now it's their spiritual family saying hello as well. The reformer John Calvin has this to say about this phenomenon. Where people that were in a a government that is dead set against King Jesus and His Gospel. It is evidence, Calvin says, of God's divine mercy that the Gospel has penetrated the pit of all crimes and iniquities. (laughs) Namely, the Roman Empire. The place where sin is at its most powerful, where humanity has given itself over to evil, to violence, to domineering, to sexual abuse, to violence, to, uh, to greed, to all these things, slavery, all these terrible things that always happen in human empires. That's where God's mercy is raining down 
the hardest. In other words, even as Paul and the Philippians were suffering oppression under their Roman overlords, the Lord was working even there bringing Caesar's own people to faith. While Caesar and his lackeys would issue edicts against Christians trying to make their life as difficult as possible, people from his own cabinet were undercutting his assaults with prayers and with gifts from the only sovereign, not Caesar, but Christ. Pastor Kent Hughes says that this reminds us that even Caesar's own were turning from him to Christ. And it reminds us of a reality that God is still accomplishing in our world today. The same God who was doing the impossible by bringing Caesar to a heel, why would we think that He's not doing the same in our world today by bringing evil to a heel through the Gospel going forward even in the most wicked regimes in this world, both here and abroad? This innocuous final greeting, Hughes says, trumpets the grand reality that one day the very seat of imperial power the place that we're all afraid of, the big, the big governments, whether our own or Russia or China or whatever's on the horizon or India or any other place, even they will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ, Messiah Jesus is Lord, that He is Yahweh, that He is the King of all glory to the glory of God the Father. I don't know why we get so fearful sometimes of the world around us knowing that that's true. Everything that we have stems from God's grace. And so finally, Paul's last word in verse 23 is a prayer for this church. Very simple, uh, very straightforward prayer. And yet one that's so profound. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's in this King alone not in their Caesar, nor in our POTUS. No matter who our POTUS happens to be. POTUS, of course, being President of the United States. No matter if he's got a donkey logo or an elephant logo. No matter who it is. It's to this King alone that we have a sure promise of a victorious future. It's in Him alone. That Christ the King by His grace, by His power, this will cover and protect and guide and sanctify us until the day of His coming. Even in the tough days and weeks and months and years. And I know that many of us are going through not easy days. Many of us aren't here this morning because it's not been an easy day or week or month. And yet, we know that through Him we will enjoy an unbroken fellowship with Him and each other because the grace of Jesus Christ is with our spirit even now. When we feel so disturbed, so discombobulated, so out of sorts, out of sync with everything that's going on around us. When we feel like we're in a, a, a haze of discouragement, a fog of depression or anxiety or anything else we can be sure that God's own Spirit is bringing grace to our spirit even now. 
even when we don't think that, and when we feel alone, knowing that God is always with us. We have great hope in what the Old Testament Scriptures predicted and the Gospels revealed. That the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations. To all peoples. To all tribes. To all tongues. To all cultures. And it's this humble and joyful and unifying and suffering King Jesus who does this on our behalf. Even when we were as lost as we could be. He has welcomed us into His fellowship. Not only into His fellowship, but fellowship with one another. Where we can lay down old grudges, old battles, and just embrace one another as redeemed sinners together in Christ. He has welcomed us. Not only us, but people from all ages, from all nations, from all denominations. That's the hardest to believe sometimes. <laughs> oh, we sure we can think, oh yeah, God loves people that speak different languages. He loves people in the southern hemisphere. He loves people in the east. But how could He love a Methodist? <laughs> From all denominations, folks. He has done His work. He has been, Jesus has been sent by His Father. And He has sent His Spirit. And He has made sure that we will all be united as friends of the cross in the end. That's the kind of lasting fellowship and everlasting grace we anticipate under the rule and reign of Christ. It's what we want to see when Dennis, like you prayed this morning, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come and Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're hoping for. And yet, that's not the world that we live in right now. You know, Philip Yancey explores. You know Philip Yancey. He's a Georgia boy, isn't he? Is that right? And he's a wonderful spiritual writer. He explores the nature of this kind of grace as it's lived out between individuals. A grace that even seems impossible. He tells the story of Daisy. Daisy, who was one of ten children that was born in 1898 to a suffering mother and an alcoholic father. This father was so cruel, so abusive, that he drove his wife out of the house and, and she utterly abandoned the family and, and left Daisy and her siblings at home when they were still little, when they still needed her to reckon with this monster that they lived with. And as the years passed, he seemed to just get worse and worse and worse. Things got harder and harder. And Daisy grew to hate him more and more and more. And when her and her siblings had all grown up, the father vanished so that life went on. But one day, lo and behold, on the horizon, he reappeared again after many years. But now, he was different. He was a believer. And he was sober. And he was repentant. And He came to all of them begging for their forgiveness for His inexcusable sins of how He treated them. Or mistreated them, really. Eventually, all the kids accepted His plea. His, his asking for forgiveness. All except Daisy. And although He spent the last five years of His life just right down the road living with her sisters, she never went to visit Him. Never wanted to speak to Him again. 
But Daisy had a daughter named Margaret who looked a lot like her mother. And Margaret didn't remember this man as he had once been. She never knew him at that point. And so, out of curiosity, maybe she stopped in to visit him at the end of his life. And the father was so far gone, his health was so deteriorating that he didn't know up from down. And so he saw her and she looked just like her mother. And so he says, Daisy, you've come to me at last. And Yancey reports that the others in the room were too awestruck to reveal that this was not actually the person that he thought it was. It wasn't actually Daisy, it was her daughter. They didn't want to say that to him. They didn't want to reveal Margaret's true identity because, and I quote, he was hallucinating grace. This is the kind of scandalous grace that we are afforded in Jesus. Even though that we ourselves play both the role of the drunk, abusive father whose sin destroys the lives of all around him. Even though maybe that's not our particular vice. But we come into this world and do just as much damage as any sinner does. A a person that remains resolute in their sin for many years. On the other side of things, we're also the embittered daughter who refuses to extend the divine gift of grace and forgiveness and be healed by its otherworldly power to people who have wronged us. So in this story, we're both the one that's wronged people severely and we're both the one that refuses to forgive anybody else of those who have wronged us. But in the end, God's grace wins out. (laughs) He hallucinated grace. And he received it. But the reality is, we don't have to hallucinate grace. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to, uh, to fake it. It is ours to receive freely and openly today. The Philippians were like this man and this daughter before they met Jesus. That's who we were before we met Jesus. We were living under the power of the God of this world. The God of this world who only corrupts, who only destroys what He touches, who inspires the Caesars and the emperors and the kings and the dictators of this world, who, who runs rampant in corporate boardrooms and, and, and uh, big communities and, and, and courts and, and who rigs things so that Normal people have a tough go of it and don't live in a a just or ordered world. He's the God of this world. He has all things in chaos. He gives uh, all of His power and reward to evil people and lets the, the normal people just suffer terribly in this world. And yet, when we were at our absolute worst, when we were the people that were at fault, in addition to be the people that were taken advantage of, when we didn't have a real friend or somebody that would help us truly, self-sacrificially in this world, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the universe, moved into our neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson says. He lived a sinless life for us. He suffered our curse in our place. He was crucified vicariously for us. He descended victoriously into the realm of the dead on our behalf. 
And He was raised and ascended to eternal glory for us, paving the way for us to follow Him. He utterly changed the trajectory of not only our life, but our everlasting life. And it's this King, through Paul's letter this morning, that doesn't just speak to the Philippians, but speaks to you this morning. It's this King who invites you, even right now, whatever you're coming to the table uh, with today, whatever baggage you have when you walk through those doors, He is inviting you right now, no strings attached, to come into His house and His family forever. His grace is for you today. No strings attached, no fine print, just love and forgiveness. Just grace and glory for you forever.